last became light in my long night, and I saw my hair hanging gray. Bent though I be, I must find the sea. I have lost myself, and I know not the way, but let me be gone. Then I stumbled on, like a hunting bat, shadow was over me. In my ears dinned the withering wind, and with ragged briars I tried to cover me. My hands were torn, and my knees worn, and years were heavy upon my back, when the rain in my face took a salt taste, and I smelled the smell of sea rack. Birds came sailing, mewing, wailing. I heard voices in cold caves, seals barking and rocks snarling, and in spout holes the gulping of waves. Winter came fast. Into a mist I passed, to land's end my years I bore. Snow was in the air, ice in my hair, darkness was lying on the last shore. There still afloat waited the boat, in the tide lifting its prow tossing. Weary I lay as it bore me away, the waves climbing, the seas crossing, passing old hulls clustered with gulls and great ships laden with light, coming to haven dark as a raven, silent as snow, deep in the night. Houses were shuttered. Wind round the muttered roads were empty. I sat by a door, and where drizzling rain poured down a drain, I cast away all that I bore. In my clutching hand, some grains of sand, and a seashell, silent and dead. Never will my ear that bell hear, never my feet that sure tread, never again. As in sad lane, in blind alley, and in long street ragged I walk. To myself I talk, but still they speak not, men that I meet. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. And that's Frodo's Dream or The Sea Bell by J.R.R. Tolkien. And the reason we're reading that on the Inklings Variety Hour is because today we are talking about Frodo's afterlife and the afterlife of Tolkien's Legendarium. The poem read at the top was one of the possible endings to Frodo's life. Obviously, we can also, and Tolkien has as well, imagined better afterlives for Frodo. But whether life ends happily or miserably for him... He's not the same as a result of his adventure in Lord of the Rings. There's there's tragedy here, and, and, and Frodo has been stretched and made more capacious by the ring and by his wound, by his adventure, so that he's capable of becoming a kind of tragic figure. Meanwhile, Frodo's cultural afterlife and the afterlife of Tolkien's legendarium would probably have upset Tolkien by the fact that it can be not so much grand and tragic, but uh, occasionally kind of silly. In the land of Shire lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire With his long wooden pipe fuzzy woolly toes He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all 
But anyone who's angry about these adaptations, whether it's, you know, Leonard Nimoy's The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins or Rings of Power series or things by Bakshi, should remember that getting Tolkien wrong is nothing new. In fact, almost as soon as he finished The Lord of the Rings, people were getting him wrong. And as with any ignoring myth, there's really no way to avoid people adapting uh, good stories to suit their own worldviews and interests. Mm -hmm. This was done with Arthur in the Middle Ages with the stories about Thebes and 5th century BC Athens, with, with really any kind of story that's been worth telling, right? People have always gotten it wrong. But is there a core body of knowledge that we should be aware of before we see the legendarium twisted and reworked to suit our culture's preoccupations? And should we resist this sort of adaptation as inherently worse than the treatment of, say, King Arthur or Oedipus? What are our obligations to a dead author and to his life's work? With me to discuss these questions and others, I have Jonathan Geltner, who was recently on to talk about The NeverEnding Story and also his own book, Absolute Music. I also have Eric Geddes, who is, who is back with us again, and we most recently had him on to talk about the Dawn Treader. So very good to see you both, gentlemen. How, how are you all doing? Quite well. Thank you, Chris. Excited to be back and talking about Toki. Yes, me too. We're excited to have, or I'm excited to have you both on. So, I mean, part of the way this this the idea for this episode was conceived is, you know, as as you all both are probably aware, the Rings of Power series came out on Amazon. It was one of the most expensive endeavors. In fact, I think maybe the most expensive television ever produced. It got a lot of blowback and a lot of flack. And I was talking some with my producer at the time, Logan Huggins, and he wanted to do an episode on it. But I also wanted to kind of broaden it out a little bit, just, just to talk about, number one, is it important to have read Tolkien before encountering Tolkien movies, Tolkien shows, Tolkien video games, various, you know, pop culture adaptations of Tolkien's work? And then if it is, what are the basics that we should know in order to really appreciate these these sorts of adaptations as as fully as possible so i mean I, I guess my first question is people in general tend to say that it's best to read the book before you watch the movie do you all agree with that is that a, a good piece of advice generally or does it mean that you'll almost certainly be disappointed whenever you watch the movie no i don't think it means you'll be disappointed i mean my own take i i personally would always read a book first but not out of fear of i don't know spoiling things somehow I think they're they're utterly different media. I can I just make a quick point for before it leaves my head, Chris, yeah. coming off of what you read, which is that one of the most important things I think to realize about Tolkien is that he was an excellent poet. He was an excellent, excellent poet. Yeah. Right. He wrote superb lyric poetry, like what you just read, and he could write more complex, longer forms as well. And I doubt there are too many adaptations of any sort of his work which can preserve that side of his talent. He's not considered a poet by the literary establishment. He's barely considered a writer of fiction. But nevertheless, that was one very important side of him, which relates to another very big basic point to make about him, which maybe we could circle back to if you guys want to address it, namely that his profession, his training, his inclination 
was that of a philologist. And that is such a bizarre word now. We don't even hardly know what it means because we don't do philology anymore, really. But that might be something worth talking about. But then real quick, I, 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 I'd like to share an anecdote because it just happened to me the other day. I just discovered that on YouTube, I can watch or rather listen to the entirety of my first encounter with Tolkien's work, which was an audio, a radio drama. I believe is the correct term. In a hole in the ground, there lived a hobbit. It was made by a group called The Mind's Eye huh. in 1979. And I have it on cassette, the same cassettes I listened to as a kid. But I haven't been able to listen to them because I don't have a cassette player. Hmm. And But I just discovered they're on YouTube. I don't know how long they've been up. Good morning. What do you mean? Do you wish me a good morning or that it is a good morning whether I want it or not? Or that you feel good this morning? Or that it is a morning to be good on? All of them at once. And a very fine morning for a pipe of tobacco out of doors into the bargain. If you have a pipe about you, sit down and have a fill of my pipe weed. Bah. There's no hurry. You have all day before us to blow gray rings of smoke. Very pretty. But I've no time to blow smoke rings this morning. I'm looking for someone to share in an adventure that I'm arranging. And it's very difficult to find anyone. I should think so in these parts. We're plain, quiet folk and have no use for adventures. Nasty, disturbing, uncomfortable things no. make you late for dinner. I can't think what anybody sees in them. We don't want any adventures here, thank you. Good morning. What a lot of things you use good morning for. Now you mean that you want to get rid of me and that it won't be a good morning till I move off. Not at all, not at all, my dear sir. Let me see. I, I, I don't think I know your name. I know your name, Mr. Bilbo Baggins, and you know my name, though you don't remember that I belong to it. And so I started listening to I listened to about the first 25 minutes of it the other day. And it was not quite as I remember it, not quite as perfectly done as I remember it, but it was pretty close to how I remembered it. And I first listened to this when I was about seven years old, I'm 40 years old now. So this decent chunk of time has passed since I was regularly listening to this thing on long car rides it's a recording of the hobbit and it takes about six cassettes to do it's a dramatization so there's different actors doing the different character parts and there are there's music and as you might know um anyone might know who's well would know who's read the hobbit there's poetry in the hobbit there's songs you know the dwarves sing a song right in the first chapter and that is sung in the production and there's musical instruments being played, just like the dwarves are described as having the same sorts of instruments for the most part. Bring out the instruments. Excuse me, I left mine on the porch. Well, just bring mine in with you. <clears throat> That's it. All right, are you ready?
So it has a lot of the qualities of a TV or film adaptation, but there's just nothing to see. And it's really delightful. And that was my first encounter with Tolkien before I was able to read anything on my own. And then, you know, obviously it went on from there, but I don't think that spoiled The Hobbit for me one bit. Yeah. Once I finally was able to read it on my own, either as a child or later on when I turned to it as a student of literature, as an adult. And even now I teach The Hobbit occasionally or parts of it, and it hasn't ever been spoiled by that encounter with it in a non-printed form. Yeah. How about you, Eric? Do do you, was your first experience of Tolkien through other media or was it the pure words of Tolkien in the, in a book form? Yeah. Well, my first, I get a feeling a lot of us were read these stories by our parents. I was not, but my parents are huge Tolkien fans. And, but the first time I remember watching anything or listening to anything was the 1977 video, The Hobbit. And my friend brought it over for a sleepover. And he was like, let's watch this. I'm like, I don't know what that is. I'm like seven years old at the time. And he's, he's like, oh, oh, let's watch it. And so we watched it. And for a seven-year-old boy, it was, I, I remember it being really, really good, but it was scary. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, was, it was really, especially the way they, they animated the goblins. Mm-hmm. My six-year-old would totally agree with you. I, he just recently watched it and was a little <laughs> bit scared as well as entranced. Yeah. yeah. But that that doesn't take away from what's good about it. And I think there is a lot of good about it. And then I also had a bit later, I think I was like 12, my mom got me a dramatized set of Lord of the Rings tapes, not by Mind's Eye, but by a group called Jabberwocky, <laughs> which I think it was a pretty small group, but, but they had multiple actors doing multiple different voices. Hmm. Like, the actor would play more than one voice, in it, and it was pretty good, and they kept everything, well, not every word or anything, but they, they kept Bombadil in there, they kept the majority of everything in there so i'm pretty lucky or blessed that i was able to listen to that first and be like yeah i actually know what this story is about before the movies came out yeah 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 i forget if i, I forget if i watched the rankin bass hobbit before reading the book or if i read the book before watching the rankin bass hobbit but they're like right you know around the same time for for me tomorrow begins your greatest adventure the greatest adventure is what lies ahead today and tomorrow are yet to be said chances the changes are all yours to make the 
And it was uh, a, 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 a animated first part of Lord of the Rings as well, right? From around that same period. Long ago, in the early years of the Second Age, the great elven smiths forged rings of power. Nine for mortal men. Seven for the dwarf lords. Three for the tall elf kings. But then the dark lord learned the craft of ring making and made the master ring. The one ring to rule them all. Yes, and I remember that. And I remember being, I, I loved that as a kid. Oh, I remember I being that. terrified by that. Like just really? yeah, like I, the, I, the I, I was just infuriated for years of my boyhood, spent infuriated that it was unfinished. That I only got to see about one third to one half, I think, of, of the no, it's more like half of the Lord of the Rings. Well, there was a so so I think the rights passed to this other company and they ended up finishing it. They, it's just all the characters look different. Wasn't but it Frank I, and Bess again? I think, uh, let me look it up. I know it had Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom at the end, and Frodo they were all singing that. Frodo of the Nine Fingers and the Ring of Doom. It has its beginnings two ages past. Gosh, uh, I had no idea they finished it. And it was really bad. Maybe it's uh, better. Let me see. Let me see. Yeah, it's 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 probably because I remember the the first one that they did, the one that freaked me out as a kid, that had a lot of rotoscoping in it, oh, yeah. which was just this this method, listeners, where they would animate over top of film of people so that it looked like weirdly kind of real, like not really realistic, but like like shadowy and smoky it, yeah it, it's how they dealt it's how they did like the the riders the nazgul and and other stuff yeah it, it was it was a really i mean so our, it, maybe maybe one thing to note is that every as far as i'm aware every take on tolkien in the visual medium has has been just weird somehow uh-huh i mean like not the the soviet thing that recently came to light is like just Un, unspeakably unimaginably bizarre that uh -huh. i mean it's a cultural difference between like russia and the soviet union and, and the west can't even begin to explain it it's just it's just there's something about people trying to take this particular fantasy and turn it into a completely different medium that seems to inspire or at least it did in the first generation of people who tried to do that in the 70s and 80s and then by the time you get like Peter Jackson figured out how to make it look like, well, kind of normal, like you could actually uh -huh. make like a reasonable yeah. film out of this stuff instead of having to, to be on psychotropic drugs in order to understand <laughs> the aesthetic, you know, which yeah. I mean, really it, it is, you know, maybe just a passage of that generation or something that, you know, the first people doing this were like reading Tolkien in the 60s and yeah. It, who knows what all kinds of stuff got bound up with it. But and that Soviet thing is from the late 80s, I think. So it's like the very end of the Soviet Union. And yes, yeah, so the 70s and 80s adaptation is just truly bizarre. And then you get Peter Jackson and say, well, this is this is actually like realist cinema. It's just happens to be a fantasy. And you know, it, it looks like it looks like Game of Thrones would end up looking like, you know, right, right. Same thing. So I don't, you know, that's just something to note about it. Like I, I think. <sighs> 
what have been other great fantasy films even to compare it to? So, so one way to think about it is, is how much success has any filmmaker or television producer had in doing fantasy? Is it actually as a genre, is it even really suited to it? And you would think, oh man, sure, of course. And with the passage of time and more and more special effects and whatnot, it should be all the more doable. But I don't actually know that that's true at all. And yeah. Because in some sense, the more realistic you can make it, the, the more sophisticated, technologically adept sort of filmmaking you can do with it, the, the actually the farther you get from its fantastic quality. Right. I don't want to make myself a heretic or something, but like I, the Peter Jackson films are great. They had an absolutely huge impact on the perception broadly of fantasy and the acceptance of it as a genre and basis for gaming and all kinds of other stuff. Yeah. But I mean, to me, having first seen, not even thinking about the text, but first seeing like that crazy Lord of the Rings thing and that mm -hmm. crazy Hobbit <laughs> and heard some radio drama stuff versions of it or like maybe the lord of the rings ones you mentioned eric if you if that's your first impression of like how tolkien gets adapted into or fantasy is presented in an audiovisual medium then you get to something like peter jackson you're like this is just like it's too realistic it's like i don't need that i can just go outside into the real world and like you know imagine that happening there Right. Uh, which is appropriate to Tolkien because Middle Earth yeah. is the Earth, and and he was adamantly in love with the Earth, right. and, and that is palpable throughout his entire fantasy. But just in terms of film, TV as a genre, I don't know. It's something yeah. about that more realistic stuff that I am not so impressed by. And yeah, um, I'd say, I'd say one thing that Jackson gets right that previous incarnations didn't as much was that this isn't a this isn't a children's medium necessarily, and, and and that this is history, right? So so they're filming it, and I remember them talking about this because I watched all of the you know appendix at the end of those DVDs. But I remember them talking about, yeah, we're treating this like it really happened and trying to recreate it as you know as though as though this is a historical film. You yeah, know, I think while while that misses some aspects of lord of the rings like for example we don't get as many songs in the you know in in the jackson trilogy as as you know we do in the 1978 and 1980 films right we still it 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 captures the like incredible intricacy and concern about the history of his own world that that tolkien had but you know christopher tolkien still didn't like it and still called it he was like they they made my father's romance into an action film you know what'd you say eric didn't he i think he said he liked the fellowship and then the other ones got too big or something okay okay like i'm i don't know the exact quote but it was something like that i think you're right i i, I vaguely remember something along those lines too yeah, he, he, he was okay at first and, and then thought it took a, a wrong turn somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And, and that would make total sense because they absolutely do build up to this giant, you know, epic. Yeah. And whereas the books are much more heavily weighted towards, or actually I should say balanced between like the sort of geopolitical struggle <laughs> between Mordor and Gondor and, and Frodo's and the other hobbits before they're you know reunited the different the different strands of the plot are more evenly balanced in the narrative whereas the films 
I mean, just think about the iconic images that come from the later films that people are always using online or whatever. It's almost always like Aragorn or something, you know, or maybe Eowyn. Like it's just, it's a, it's those warrior king type stuff. And yeah. and that, you know, Tolkien certainly was able to work with that kind of stuff very well and knew it from his own sort of academic bailiwick. But yeah, there's an, in the actual books, if you look at the how the material is dispersed, how it's weighted, do you think the films, you know, I think Christopher would have been right about that. They made it a pretty clear choice in the later ones, but I haven't watched them in a little while. So I don't yeah. completely yeah. take that dogmatically, but you know, but that does make, I mean, so, okay. At some point, like, to go back to my first reaction, you know, I just don't think I used I used to be the kind of person who just hated that films got made out of books mm -hmm. because it just always felt like a betrayal. Yeah, it just it, it there's just no way and because but so but why but why is that? And it's because there's a huge thing in a in a book in a novel that you just can't get in a film really, and you're not, you're not meant to. This isn't a knock on cinema. It's just the right. difference between the genres and that is a narrator a narrator is what gives you fiction if yep. there's a narrator then there's fiction and if there's no narrator then you've got you've got drama basically and if you want the prose style if you want the perspective of a narrator who can launch into a description who can supply you with any sort of information you might need to have at that moment who you know can get into the thoughts and feelings of a character that are not going to be overtly expressed, then you want a book and there's just no, you want a novel and there's no, there's no substitute for it. And that's why the thing will not die. And if you want to, and I, 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 I'm like, I don't anymore believe, I, I'm curious what you guys think, but I mean, you've probably heard a million times as I have like, well, if you watch movies, TV, it's going to kill your ability to, imagine literally have formed pictures in your mind of the scenes in the in the novel let's just say they're not in lord of the rings and you know you'll, you'll lose your like your imaginative acumen and i at some point i don't know when exactly but a good while ago realized that that's just not true yeah i actually my imagination the the part of my mind that forms images rather than absorbs images that are presented to me on a screen or wherever just functions in a completely different way and i i'm not I, yeah it doesn't feel like it's it's warring for space there i happen to think that the images i make from reading are superior to almost anything i've ever seen in a film mm -hmm. but i'm not comparing them or so they just seem like completely yeah. different things so as far as that goes to answer that question like is it inherently inferior to make a filmic or television adaptation of something in Tolkien or anything else for that matter. I feel like it's, I, I don't, I don't know. I, I I don't think it can be inherently inferior. I think you could screw it up completely. So sure. maybe the criticism of Rings of Power is just, I haven't watched it. Maybe it's totally justified, but not, it's not just wrong to do it. You know, right. I don't see how that makes much sense, but I'd be willing to entertain some, some sort of argument about why it might be. I just can't quite think of it. It would be like, saying to someone you know you fool you can't write music based on this thing that i've written and the story that i've written you know that's not fair it's like well of course it's fair i mean it happens all the time i mean it, it, it's not but maybe the problem is that we're not used to thinking of it as that different you know if someone you know in the 19th century they used to compose music all the time based on texts of some kind and you'd probably get a little program with it 
in a concert saying, you know, giving you the text maybe or or telling you about it or something, program music, we call it. And they thought it was great. And wonderful stuff has been written that way. It wasn't music drama. It was just music with a program. And maybe our problem with thinking about something like TV film adaptations of Lord of the Rings or whatever is that we don't realize just how different the genres are. And we're expecting to get something very comparable from the reading experience in the audiovisual experience. And we shouldn't be expecting that mm -hmm. completely different experience. Yeah. 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 I think partly for that reason, I really don't agree that it's best to read the book before you watch the movie. And in fact, uh, a real case in point of that for me is, is, is the trilogy where I had been years since I'd read the Lord of the Rings the first time through in junior high. And it had been quite a while since I since I'd read it when I watched the films and the great thing about the films was that you know I I enjoyed them a lot but what I found I could then do when I wanted more of the experience of that story or those characters or whatever else as different as the medium was was I could plunge in deeper at using the books and, and explore that world more thoroughly through the books than I ever could through the films. And it's true that a lot of the, you know, a lot of the visuals, a lot of the actors' faces and things like that would bleed through to my experience of the, of the book sometimes, but not always. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. But, I don't, um, I don't I, that does not happen to me for some that's reason. Great. That's great. I actually think I think it's because of the 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 paucity of visual imagination that I actually have. I, I think I, I sort of like live on the level of the language more than being able to I'm like convert the language into a, a scenery or faces in, in my mind. I don't know that that's good at all, but I think it's oh it's it's pretty it's, good it's for actually uh, how it works. And I met yeah. other people who have very vivid visual imaginations when when presented with texts and they maybe would say the same thing as you and, and feel like there was some bleeding of the actor's faces into your own imagination but yeah yeah although like uh, honestly like when when the book is describing frodo and it's describing him as like a slightly paunchy middle-aged dude right yeah. i'm yeah, not picturing elijah wood at that point except maybe right. elijah wood as he looks now right and where the book ends up differing it's like it fills out the picture some of the basic pictures that the movies movies gave me i had a weird thought just now don't ask me why I, that monty python crossed my mind and it made me wonder and i don't know maybe you guys can answer this has anyone done in any medium at all a more or less satiric take on the lord of the rings yes yeah Board of the Rings. I remember reading that's, it that's in, in high school. Yeah, it's it's by National Lampoon. It's called Board of the Rings. Oh, perfect. Uh, okay. All it's, right. Uh, it's pretty. It's, it's not that good, but but I remember laughing at it quite a bit when I was a kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's significant. That means, you know, a, a genre or a, a story, whatever, a myth hasn't really come into its own until it's been mocked. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, certainly, like, even in the Middle Ages, they were mocking you know, the Arthurian stuff. Oh, um, yeah, immediately. And, uh, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, the, the, the self-consciousness of yeah. romance and fantasy is almost coeval with romance and yep. fantasy. Yeah, that's right. Not, it's not a yeah. postmodern thing or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, people think that like Monty Python was the first time that they were mocking Arthur or the Renaissance was the first time, but nope, they, oh, God, they no. were mocking Arthur in like the 
11th century 12th century yeah you know it's it's it happens almost as soon as we get those stories so we should probably continue since we've already sort of been talking about adaptation we can circle back around if we have time to talking about the basics of tolkien or whatever else but i think uh, i think continuing just to kind of talk about adaptation and how how adaptation works because i think i think some people could argue right that there's no way to get out of adaptation right that that whether you're adapting one story to another written story or whether you're adapting you know a story to a film or to a video game or something like that it seems like just about every story that really resonates with us for a long period of time is adapted from something else you could view lord of the rings and tolkien's legendarium as a series of you know fairly creative adaptations of 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 a lot of ancient literature a lot of a lot of folklore influencing languages is yeah am i am i off base there am i am i saying too much about adaptation am i am i crediting it with too much i think you can do it two ways you can do it where you're just if if your aim is to point and say oh how silly this is, then you got something like Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But if you've got something like, I I know this is a different mythology, but Percy Jackson, Mm -hmm. like I'd say that yes, the the way Riordan writes Percy Jackson and the other series he does, they're very kind of tongue-in-cheek, satirical tone. And yet you can still tell he really likes the mythology he's adapting. Yeah. I think that's kind of what happened with Tolkien. Because Tolkien marinated and lived and breathed all this mythology, right? But instead of making something lesser or or something that could be taken as satirical or whatever... He, he does his own thing with it, and it turns out to be one of the greatest greatest myths ever written, right? So, yeah. I I don't know. Maybe there's more ways. Yeah. I don't, I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, I want to say that I, I, I agree with, with all that, but actually one of the points that I find myself very urgently trying to make in the writing that I'm presently doing on Tolkien, which is part of a, a book project, is that... He was, in fact, tremendously modern. Mm-hmm. And so so the adapting that he's doing, if, if that's how we want to talk about it, of the Northern European mythological deposit was done by bringing it into a modern mode. And so, like, for me, it's easy to get into talking about this in Lord of the Rings because it's really quite obviously a novel, but it's right. more salutary, I find, to demonstrate it by looking at the Silmarillion. So mm-hmm. the assumption that's kind of in the uh, sort of floating around out there seems to be that like, oh, Tolkien has written like a new book of Genesis or something in the Silmarillion. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's quite mistaken. If you just look at the first two chapters, like I, I reread just the other day, the Ainulindule and the Valaquenta, mm-hmm. these very early account, this is the beginning of everything, the creation of Arda and the world, the cosmos, and then and sort of the origin of evil story, 
Melkor and, and all that. And, and then the inhabitation of the world by the, the Valar, the spirits and all that. If you read that, what it actually, the kind of information contained in those early chapters. So, so presumably the most primitive archaic portion of the entire legendarium is the kind of information that is actually contained in scholarly apparatus to real <laughs> mythological documents. Okay. It is it is the kind of stuff you find in footnotes where you have scholars telling us, and it's very, very clear. It's incredibly lucid. There's never mm -hmm. any, there's no sentence in the Silmarillion where you're like, now what the heck does that mean? Let's right. have 10 generations of rabbis debate it. You know, right. you couldn't possibly have it. You can have all kinds of scholarly commentary on Tolkien's work, criticism. But that's a completely different thing from exegesis going on over centuries, which is what actual foundational mythological texts produce. Mm -hmm. they, they are so mysterious and weird, and they proceed through images that, and, that are obscure, motivations that are not clear on the part of characters whose identities are highly debatable. You know, like there's just right. there's so much in it. And, and that's not Tolkien at all. Yeah, it's all very clear. And what you get reading the that creation story is a very clear sense of thousands of years of metaphysical thought lying behind it. The people who actually wrote Genesis or Hesiod or whatever did not have the benefit of like fine scholastic distinctions about like essence and, and being and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But you can clear, if you know, you know, that material, you can clearly pick up on all of that in Tolkien. Not that he was deliberately trying to be pedantic about it, but he was a scholar. He was a modern Englishman. He was a scholar. He had at his disposal intellectual resources and tools that, did not exist more than a hundred years before his time. He was a modern philologist, so he understood how language works in a way that our ancestors 200 years ago and beyond simply did not. They, they had no knowledge of how languages work and relate to each other that way. Mm -hmm. And and he had a capacity and a tendency to explain things very clearly because he was a professor. Yeah. And it, it's the work of a professor. So that's getting, I mean, yeah, that's the kind of adaptation that it is. So it is, it is very modern in that way. And something that I like to bring up just so people can appreciate it. You know, it's, it's very easy to get down on modernity and, and, and think that it's nasty. And certainly Tolkien himself had such feelings about much of modern sort of industrial life. And, but it does come with some benefits and, and yeah. he, he made good use of those benefits. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because the Silmarillion is written using deliberately archaic, you know, King language. James, approximately. King yeah. James um, and, uh, and, and, and takes a form that most novels do not. It's easy to assume, oh, yes, this is him trying to reproduce ancient writing. But yeah, you're right. I mean, ancient writing is a lot less clear than, than the Silmarillion is. Have you, have you ever read The Drafts of the Lost Road? His kind of... the. Yeah, I mean, he he was capable of imitating actual ancient yeah because forms if he, if he that's really and and he did I mean especially in yeah. his poetry he would more nearly approach that and we should talk about you know maybe his Arthurian stuff at a later time but that would be another instance where you can see him approach closer to 
archaic styles. Yeah, yeah. Because the um, bus road is incredibly unclear. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Although, yeah. But it's unclear why it's unclear. Uh, right, right. Yeah. It's, it's partly <laughs> it's partly because of the shape that the narrative takes and that it's all coming through dreams. But then when you get the like very medieval instances of of old english poetry and things like that that itself is you know it's a bunch of modern scholars trying to figure out a text that's not clear right yeah and and that's just not something that actual like medieval people did (laughs) they just they just you know made up whatever they want and and yeah they did not approach it in this sort of good modern you know wissenschaft-based germanic scholarly way that that tolkien had even when he was trying to uh, yeah so even if you look at like like the arthurian poetry or something and and you'll see him deliberately trying to create an old write in an old meter you're still going to get modern modern stuff just breaking through you you just you can't get out you can't get out of your own period you're going to show your your true colors as a writer there's no there's no way around it no one can actually right from a time that is not their own so it's just something to honestly value and appreciate about him and yeah. and realize that that's the sort of adaptation he's doing and and we're adapting in Tolkien across a really vast historical distance which is very different from what we're talking about when we're looking at like contemporary or almost shortly after films and stuff that are coming right around. right although I, I you know I would say partly because of technology partly because of attention spans partly because of just very swiftly changing zeitgeists, right? It, you you could make the argument that a lot of the, you know, especially the more recent Tolkienian stuff, whether it's Lord of the Rings, whether it's the the Jackson trilogy, whether it's, uh, yeah, you know, the, the Hobbit, whether it's Rings of Power, that that is also adapting the Tolkien source material to sort of the concerns and the capacities of modern audiences. Yeah. And if those capacities are diminished, then right. I mean, yeah, one doesn't like to insult the bulk of one's contemporaries right. because it really reveals more about your own shortcomings than yeah. But but it's true. I mean it is hard often to not look at something based on an older text. So I, I recently got discovered rather a little late to the party that this debate going on about the version of the Green Knight made like a year and a half ago. I, I wrote a little piece on my blog for it. And and when I finally got around to watching that movie and, and yeah, you end up, you end up saying something like, well, you know, it's like, it's like the best Green Knight that a, a modern person could do. <laughs> like, we don't have the same sort of spiritual wherewithal as, you know, a 14th century Englishman, but I don't know. I mean, yeah, there's something to that. Oh, greatest of kings, let one of your knights try to land a blow against me. Indulge me in this game. I will be thee. I was presenting on Sir Garon and the Green Knight, the poem, at a medievalist conference 
and at the end somebody asked me what i thought of the film and i told them i thought it was good and they got really mad at me and they, it is uh, good because, yeah it's just, I, it's I just not it, it it's not the same do, because nobody could do yeah. what a 14th century no one has the kind of faith and experience of the world and cosmos that a 14th century how do you how do you make a movie out of an alliterative poem it's well just... and, and and i mean the thing that i know i talked about this with some other people it's humorless and yeah. the middle ages was not humorless right even Gaw even the gawain poet who was a pretty dour guy by all <laughs> by all appearances in his poetry his humor i mean and the whole Green Knight poem is is based on this very serious jest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the, that's the heart of the Middle Ages, right there. The, the Western medieval period was well-rounded age. It was body. It was satirical. It was profoundly spiritual. Yeah. You know, it knew revelry. It knew asceticism. It had all this stuff, uh, and, and it was all integrated. You know, the, it, it all was part of one wheel of fortune and one one great pattern of life for them and often as a modern person i think what being a modern person often feels like is that we're either lopsided we're like missing part of all that equation we're like always serious like we don't know how to like joke and have fun innocently oh my gosh yeah or uh, even if we do have all that stuff it all feels disjuncted it's like it's like cut off it's compartmentalized and 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 yeah awkwardly yeah. strung together not part of a seamless tapestry of life yeah. and and i got that from the green life film i was like okay well this is like the green knight if it was really really serious and yeah. no one could ever believe in someone being as virtuous as gawain right, is. right. in the poem I and mean, he's very sorely tempted but he's also very clever very playful mm -hmm. very articulate which this this one in the movie is not <laughs> and yeah. and he gets through it yeah. And, and the one in the movie gets through it too, but only, uh, you know, just, and yeah. it's a very, a very different feeling. So, so it's yeah. like, well, yeah. And I, and I, I watched it. And I was like, well, yeah, that's, that would be the modern take on the green Knight. You know, it would either, it would either have to be like Monty Python or it would be what, what that movie was. Right. Right. Uh, Eric, were you, you going to say something? Well, I was just going to ask, is that any good? Cause I, I was really excited to see it. And then I watched the trailer again, and I'm like, "This is too dark for me." <laughs> it looks yeah, too you, dark for me. It's it's gonna depend. You you may be disappointed with it. It's a beautiful movie. It moves slowly. There's you know, there's some there's some explicit stuff in there that's not really in the original. Oh. And all, all these all these you know all these stupid critics are like, well. The original Sir Gowan and the Green Knight was a very sexual poem, blah blah blah, and and you're like, yeah, but no, I mean, yeah, I, I get what you're saying, <laughs> but yeah, it it didn't really, you know. So I don't. There there are all these little things that that mainly, yeah. mainly the critics would annoy me when they said that. What I really admired about the movie was that Sir Gowan and the Green Knight itself, the the poem, it takes this sprawling romance tradition where everything's so episodic right and 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 almost doesn't have a shape like scholars kind of have to impose a shape on things like you know Yvain the Knight of the Lion or or other tales by Chrétien or other you know other Middle English adaptations really kind of shapeless just kind of 
you know, stories written to entertain people. And so they would go on and on and on and on. Yep. Um, you really so now, get a sense of, of people just like sitting around drinking and, yeah. and like, like, what, what can we come up with tonight? To yeah. Amuse the king? <laughs> yeah. So gown of the green Knight takes that and it gives it a shape and it gives it a very distinct shape. It compresses it and mm-hmm. is just, is just beautiful in the way that it gives order to, and, and kind of riffs on the romance tradition as well. Just really kind of like we were talking about, you know, in the mi- middle ages, they were making fun of Arthur too. Well, this definitely does in its own sort of very sophisticated way. Yeah. And what the green Knight, the film does is it takes that tight plot that tight poem and it turns it into a conventional romance again almost so that it goes on and on and on and it explores like it cycles back through a lot of the same things that the poem explores it just often explores them with different outcomes so so it's a meditation on a lot of the themes of the green knight it's just a meditation that's not a christian one and that is and that that spins out like a romance again so oh yeah and i mean it it loses it loses all the dialogue. I mean, you know, the, the, what, the, what makes the, the poem what it is, is uh, this incredible debate, to use an archaic critical term, between Gawain and the, the lady, the Bertilac. You know, how can yeah. he abide by the conventions of chivalry and courtly right. love and not give offense to her and at the same time refuse her overtures which yeah. is part of the game that's being played with at the the castle there and you know this this is a huge delicate dance sort of balancing act and mm-hmm. that's you know that's kind of lost <laughs> yeah absolutely there's no, subtlety, there's no gracefulness like that i mean i i old professor of mine put it really well you know in the poem the lady bertilac comes and sits on gawain's bed and in the movie she comes and she really sits on Gawain's bed. Yeah, yeah. Like, I mean, it's just, there's no subtlety right. going on. And it's it's the inevitable modern take on, on that poem. We could not do a, a, a sort of true to the spirit of the original version of it without right. being embarrassed, I think. We, we would be, we just don't feel like we can inhabit our own cultural quandaries as comfortably as that poem yeah is able to inhabit its quandaries and and still not mock them you know so i mean like in the middle ages we have these things called parody masses where you take a tune a popular tune and use it to set the mass and it's not mocking the tune it's actually mm-hmm. elevating it yeah and yeah. So, that's to that too yeah, that's what a parody really can be. But yeah. for us, parody is always diminution. It's right. always satire. Right. Yeah. Yanking the rug out from under it. Yeah. Debunking and subverting or whatever. And yeah. problematizing. <laughs> All these wonderful academic words. And it's not yeah that's just a sort of a lot often what you get and to bring it all back to Tolkien I mean I haven't seen the rings of power but my sense is that that is again sort of what the, the modern impulse the, the current impulse maybe postmodern if you want is to like find what's what's a problem what's problematic in something and dwell on that and pull it out and try and you know rearrange it subvert it fix it quote unquote 
Indeed. Usually it's not really ever fixing anything. It's just sort of inverting it or ignoring it or something. But, you know, I, whereas if, if you read the Tolkien, you're going to get a hangover of that old medieval Christian worldview, which is able to right. balance tragic and ultimately hopeful sort of states of consciousness. I mean, I was even just reading the part in the Silmarillion today where the Valar between them are, are like, debating the coming of the children of Iluvatar, elves and men, because they know, I mean, it's amazing. You could translate this into a contemporary environmental debate. They know that when elves and men arrive, they're going to cut down trees. Hmm. And, and Yavanna doesn't want that to happen. She's the goddess of all things that grow. And, you know, biodiversity is, <laughs> she's the goddess of biodiversity. And, mm -hmm. and she's sad. And, and so they have a debate and they go to Iluvatar and, they, you know, they, they make, um, they're aware of the trade-off that life always is. And the upshot of it is that you get Ents, which is fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but but it, and the chapter ends with Aule, the, the, the sort of, smith forge i think it's him anyway uh -huh. saying but the elves and men are still going to need wood <laughs> they're going to need yeah. to make stuff and forge stuff and they're going to need wood and that's the end that's the final word in the chat and i just think that's amazing i mean that's such an incredibly balanced thing it's, it's a, yeah. a recognition of like you are not going to get a completely just static no harm world yeah it's not going to be and that very deep fundamental basically religious not just christian recognition of life is not not something you're going to find i think in a modern adaptation right. of anything because we just we just don't have that sort of wisdom yeah yeah well i think you know there, there can be an inability to hold things in tension i think especially if you yourself are trying to be righteous by simplistic slightly more fashionable systems you know you're you're going to mainly complain about the things in older works that don't line up with the most fashionable sort of two-dimensional form of morality that's that still like often partakes in some aspect of morality but but often is is, is a bit stripped down and it prevents us from having the complexity of of being able to to laugh right and 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 find humor in things without like yeah, that's space. where humor comes from so often right. is that real the realization of the gap between one's ideals and and sort of pragmatic morality how things yeah. actually ought to be versus yeah. how one thinks they ought to be two different oughts that are in competition yeah. Yeah. I think the the hobbits are a great symbol of this in a lot of ways and 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 that you know they are funny and kind of goofy. But without, like you're saying, subverting any of the high stuff, you know, in 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 the Lord of the Rings. In fact, in, in a way, they, they right, yeah, they they are modern people in a lot of ways, right? Who who are small and who are looking up at the world around them that they're exploring in this position of awe and allowing it to influence them even as they're laughing at themselves so even though there's you know there's humor and there's there's a kind of modernizing of this world through the hobbits and in lord of the rings you know even making it a novel like you said jonathan is modernizing it it's not subverted because of that it's it's kind of a it it it's brought to bear on the hobbits reality and our on our modern minds as a result which is a which is which is quite a feat quite a an amazing uh, oh yeah to thing. get the 
the the both and is always mm -hmm. an accomplishment and it, it it does happen in Tolkien. I mean, so maybe to go back to some general statements we might make as guidelines regarding the total mm -hmm. which Tolkien didn't like. Corpus, I'll call it. He liked Latin, didn't like There you go. There you go. Yeah. Yeah, I mean you, you got it. Yeah, I I think that you you do need to you can hit the core texts and and that be be fine. Like you don't need to read the history of Middle Earth. That's totally unnecessary. But you read right. The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, and Lord of the Rings, and that's, you know, I don't know, a great summer or two of reading maybe for most people. And and that's it. That's all you need. And they're, they're great fun. And you'll get the balance there. So you get, you know, you'll get, yeah, Frodo's ambiguous and kind of <laughs> tragic end at the end of Lord of the Rings. But you also get the end of The Hobbit. And you have Gandalf telling right. Bilbo, you're only a little fellow in the world after all. And Bilbo's like, what a relief. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> and lights yeah. his pipe. And and you know, you, you have these incredible, you need both of those things. That both of those things are life. Trauma you don't recover from this side of the grave, and the incredible stoicism, not stoic, more like the Zen of Bilbo at the end of the Hobbit. Before he decided that Bilbo was gonna get ruined by the ring, you know, and 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 all that, you know, he ends that that story with this incredible humility combined with pluckiness, like like English. I mean, he talks about the Hobbit yeah. trying to he wanted them to embody the virtues of the ordinary Englishman that he served alongside with in the trenches of World War One. And I think he did a, a pretty damn fine job of, of doing that. And But, you know, that is a character type that has passed out of living memory now. So, yeah, you need to, you need to read the books to get that because the films aren't going to capture it. They, they don't. They can't anymore. Elijah Wood staring weepily into the camera for <laughs> minutes is not going to give you the sense of that that early 20th century British hardiness. It's just yeah. not. So, yeah, right, but... I think they kind of made him also comic reliefish and tried a lot, right? Yeah, in the films. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's just it. We we think we often think of that in those terms of like comic relief. But the comedy in Tolkien is not a relief. It's 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 balancing. It's in there exactly where it belongs. It's not mm -hmm. it's not a relief from an unbearable tragedy it's just the other side of the coin you know it's like it's all yeah. naturally there it has a natural yeah. place in the overall scheme of things it feels yeah. like it belongs and yeah i don't know maybe you guys think in the film stuff or tv stuff maybe the the contrast is is too much of a juxtaposition it's too jarring or something I, I don't know or just not there maybe yeah i don't know in general yeah I, I mean i would say they they do err on the side of thinking of it as comic comic relief that's why they had to sort of ruin the character of gimli in in, yeah. the, in the trilogy to to give those scenes that sort of you know comic elements it's hard i think in a movie to juggle tones in the same way that you can in a book i remember even with the harry potter films after after reading the books watching the films and thinking oh man that was really just kind of dark throughout like especially with the later ones right yes, definitely. Um, where where i remembered in the books they had lots of light moments right it was just yeah. also urgent and i think it's just harder to do that in a film and have it be a unified thing because you don't have time right you've got two hours maybe three if you're being really pretentious about it. <laughs> right. And, and, and in a novel, you actually have many hours of reading, at least at most people. I mean, how many hours does it take to, if you were to read The Lord of the Rings aloud, that's that's the that's the metric you should go by, not how fast right. you can read it. 
silently, but how fast it would take you to read it aloud. You know, how long did it take dad to read it or whatever to you? Many, many, many hours with all kinds of stops in it. You know, this a, a chapter break is a totally different thing from you know fading out to the next scene in a film. Like I like I was saying earlier, they're, they're really just such hugely different genres that that they we we should think of it as like the difference between literature and music. Yeah, not between literature and a thing that's like quasi literature. You know, it's like eh, it's not. It's more different than that. And you, yeah, I think one of the things you do sacrifice in the film in the genre of film is being able to construct maybe not humor so much well humor too but the comedic in the same way as a text a long text is able to do yeah yeah well great i think that's about all the time we have for this uh, inklings variety hour but before we go i just want to ask you both what your favorite tolkien adaptation has been and what you think is the worst Tolkien adaptation or the or the one that as far as you could tell takes you the furthest from the spirit of the work I know what my favorite adaptation is I don't know what my least favorite would be or or why but I think my favorite I've always just personally enjoyed and liked The Hobbit more than Lord of the Rings even though Lord Mm. of the Rings is huge it's epic it's grand it's the Hobbit is like, no, it's just one guy going out into the world, scared, but doing everything that he can to do the right thing all the time. And my favorite adaptation of The Hobbit is the BBC one from like the 60s. Huh. I don't know if you've either. Oh, that. are you talking no. about audio? Audio yeah. adaptation? Yeah. 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 No, I think I. Yeah. Is, is it the one with. Gosh. I, I don't. Is that that's not the one with Ian Holm, right? I, I think I think the billable actor is Paul Daneman or something like that. Good morning. What do you mean? You wish me a good morning, or hmm? mean that it is a good morning, whether I want it or not, or that you feel good this morning, hmm? or that it is a morning to be good on. Well, I'll learn all of them at once. Um, If you have a pipe... Just you all brought your instruments. Go get them. On board. Right, now sit down, everybody. Sit down. Marlene. Ready? Now for our sound. Far over the misty mountains cold To dungeons deep and caverns old We must away a break of Seek the pale enchanted gold. And it does cut it down. It's like three hours and 42 minutes. Hmm. But I think it still gets the spirit of it. Maybe the closest I've ever 
come to as as far as adaptations go to the original book. But yeah, that that's just that's my that's great. That's great. Jonathan? I also, I, I, I that's beautiful, Eric. I, I also prefer The Hobbit. I think it's one of the most perfect novels or anyway, long works of prose fiction that's that's been written. Lord of the Rings is great too, as well as grand, but there is something that's just flawless about The Hobbit. It manages to be airtight while at the same time giving you this incredible sense of a vast world spreading beyond its pages. And it's it's usually hard to do both of those things at mm. the same time. One yeah. book that's 300 pages long and and it, and it captures a, a certain Englishness from a certain time in a way that few other books do, I think. Lord of the Rings certainly doesn't even attempt that that kind of work. So I do love The Hobbit, maybe just in turn love it more than any of his other works. And so my favorite would have to be the the one I mentioned at the beginning that I just discovered to my delight is on YouTube. And I will, as I get chances over the next few days, be listening to it again for the first time in decades. That Mind's Eye production from I think 79. Just because it's in it's in so deep down for me. You know, it's it's like yeah. uh, deep layer of my consciousness i was seven years old when i heard that could arguably more than any other text or event has shaped the course of my life thereafter and then the worst i mean i don't know i i just i i just lack terminology to describe how insane the russian <laughs> version <laughs> of one of the rings is and and so i i, I watched it one time no i watched it twice and I watched it, but the first time I watched it was with some old friends of mine. We gathered together every summer in the hills of Southern Ohio. And mostly what we do is play Dungeons and Dragons. But this particular time that that had just become available. So we watched it and it's a bunch of uns unsupervised, unchaperoned dudes who've left their families behind. So we were drinking and, and we were, as we started watching it, you know, it was so insanely bad. We, we just, <laughs> really started drinking because he's like you have to it's i mean it, the movie practically gets you drunk just by watching it i mean it was just it was incredibly funny and, and hilarious to watch but it's just like so out there and incomprehensible and the actors are like the actors also look drunk <laughs> it's just like it's an intoxicated, bizarre experience. I mean, I, I don't know if it's even that bad, given that they probably have a budget of like 10 rubles to work with. And, I mean, yeah. You yeah. know, it's it's just, I, don't, I can't really fairly even criticize it. It's just so out there that like, you, you you do at some point when you're watching it, think like, I've, I've like spent so much time studying this stuff and like adoring this literary work and, and thinking it's so important and, and like it, it, it's influenced so many other things that i've read or done like dungeons and dragons or whatever and you know i teach this stuff and it's like and like this is how it looks to another <laughs> culture <laughs> oh no what what have i been devoting my time to but then also maybe it makes you think like wow i don't know maybe i should learn something about russian culture or then again it maybe makes you think like no wonder the soviet union fell apart when it did <laughs> They made this movie and then that was it. They were done. <laughs> that's what that's what killed it, I think. Tolkien Tolkien won the war. Not there really. you go. That's Tolkien right. That's right.
That's right. Yeah. If all goes as planned, we're going to be covering this on a future episode of the Inklings Variety Hour. And we may get some different perspectives. I was talking with someone else who's going to be joining us and just tempering the bizarreness of that movie and our reaction to it with with also like the realization this is clearly a labor of love and and they are doing the best they possibly can but they don't have the budget of amazon or of you know or or peter jackson or, or whatever else or the budget of like any you know low budget american movie either but i haven't watched the whole thing so i've watched the beginning of it and i think on the whole if i'm going to compare it with rings of power i'm still kind of <laughs> like, <laughs> well, I, I haven't I seen that one, but um, yeah I, I was gonna say like you know they're, they're they're adaptations of tolkien made at the time of a an empire's desperate collapse and the only yeah. difference is one had enormous budget and the other didn't <laughs> yeah 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 i will say i initially when i watched rings of power i hated the first couple episodes because there were just so many strange things that i didn't understand like why they were doing this or that thing right but as i kept watching there are some really interesting moments too and and it's really really cool to see numenor on screen oh yeah and and get like kind of even even if like the way people interact in Numenor and Rings of Power, I'm sort of like it's it's one vision of how this could work, but I don't think they quite were like this. Or or well, or it's one of the like most this. mysterious parts of the whole Legendarium, really. Yeah. I mean, it's the the middle section that right. cries out for elaboration. So I actually do love yeah. that choice as like yeah. yeah, let's not do you know the first age and and all right. that. Let's let's do this weird middle. Yeah. interregnum thing and yeah the Atlant- Tolkien's Atlantis I mean that's just so yeah. crazy it's just insane to me that that was but he could have easily gone from basically the first age to the third age like that that would yeah. not have been a problem narratively in his right legend. but instead he's like no no we're gonna have Atlantis in here too we've <laughs> got we've yeah. got a sort of Arthurian thing going on and we've got like a Genesis thing going on oh just have Atlantis also yeah yeah well part I, of that is the is the lost road he when he and Lewis you know yeah. one was gonna write a time travel story one was gonna write a space travel story he doesn't like machines he has ancestral mm-hmm. dreams right going all the way back to Atlantis and, yep. and that morphs mm-hmm. into Numenor and that sets the background for so much of the world as it exists in lord of the rings i mean it's really important but yeah he doesn't tell the story directly very much yeah uh, and it's and... sort of the closest the legendarium comes to i don't know I, I gathered rings of power picked up on this actually to kind of a, a mediterranean sort of classical antiquity mm-hmm. feeling, roman empire type feeling yeah it's where, you know, Tolkien was very, maybe this is something to acknowledge, actually, basic background understanding of Tolkien. I know we're like way over time, but nah, you're good. his total love of northernness, the northern mm-hmm. thing, like his, his, and very rightfully so, because the educated elite in the West for 500 years, if not longer, have been obsessively focused on Mediterranean antiquity that's where we think our civilization comes from that's where our 
you know, the prestige culture of the West comes from mm-hmm. Greece and Rome. And Tolkien, notably without being a Nazi about it, was said, well, <laughs> well, maybe Gothic is interesting in the North. Yeah. You know, other people had looked North before and during his time. They did tend to have, you know, sort of Wagnerian proto-Nazi or actual Nazi mm-hmm. inclinations. You know, if you like E.R. Edison, the other fantasists like that. Yeah. So a lot of them very accomplished writers, but yeah, it, it, there is a, something about Northern European, Germanic, and more so than Celtic mythological stuff that seems to have been, seems to have lent itself in the 19th and 20th centuries, at least, to some unhealthy nationalisms, to put it lightly. But not that Mussolini, you know, couldn't take advantage of Roman stuff to, to do right. his in the 20s but yeah but yeah so this is but that, that was such an important thing for Tolkien that to, to figure out what's what's there in the heritage of what you could call western civilization that that's importantly coming from the north from the germanic and celtic and some other you know and finnish stuff baltic stuff that's actually not even european and that's a great contribution that he made a sort of great redirection he didn't do it entirely on his own but but he played a huge role in that to sort of dislodge the renaissance and enlightenment privileging of of greece and rome yeah. Well, I think, I mean, that's that's being done to a certain extent by the Romantics, you know, in, yeah. in the 19th century as well, because they're reacting against Napoleon and the French who are very pro-Greece and Rome and view themselves as the, you know, as, as, a, as a new manifestation of that culture. And, and Yeah, the, the rise of, of nationalism, for sure, in the north yeah. of Europe has inevitably brought that in. And the folklorists, you know, Brothers Grimm and or Hans Christian Andersen, not exactly a folklorist, but drawing on that and you know, James McPherson in, in Britain in the 18th century. Or, um, or even William Morris was. Yeah. Yep, totally. Longfellow in, in, in America. Yep. Um, yeah. And all kinds of people got into it. And, and that's, and most of those that we just mentioned were, were politically great or fine. Yeah. Uh, Russians too started getting into it. Afanasyev. Mm-hmm people but but then yeah also like Wagner and you know, yeah. <laughs> other yeah. but but that's just an important thing but then the, the cool thing about Numenor is it's like is this one moment where, but you know the educational system that Tolkien came up through was still totally dominated by Greek and Latin mm-hmm. so-called classical education now they didn't call it that then of course and and so he had to learn Greek and Latin certainly Latin fluently and and he had Greek fluently ancient Greek and most people didn't have it as good as him, but it was still, it was part of the, the curriculum. And he decided one day, like, you know, he found, he like finds a Gothic grammar or something. And it, like the uh, first one that's been made, uh, old Gothic. And, and he's like, this is awesome. This is what yeah. I'm going to do. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because like when, when you mentioned the, the Nazis, they brought to their use of this material, this Ragnarokian sort of like, okay, we're going to go all out and you know if if we can't win then we will have this glorious defeat where we're just you know completely shattered so there's this kind of like germanic willfulness and fatedness about it all right and tolkien has elements of that in his work but it's tempered by humility in a way that I think, you know, even Wagner and and other people who work with Germanic myth at the time who are who very much admire it they're they're not humble in the same way and Tolkien sort of there's there's a there's a victory but it and it's a it's a 
kind of spiritual victory, right? And and victory in actual fact, but it's also a long defeat. There's a sadness and a and a sort of poignant quality to to the world and the way things are that you can't you can't just say like ha 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 we fought the best and even though we all died, you know, we'll rejoin the gods at the final battle and die again, right? Yeah. It's it's much more melancholy than that and and humble than that and i think and 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 far less obsessed with victory for the sake of victory than than a lot of fighting for the sake of fighting i mean like he he yeah i mean well not to not to put too fine a point on it but at the end of the day yeah i mean it is really a fundamentally christian body of work and you see that in his handling of so one of the weirdest things about the whole legendarium to me has always been elves and men. Why two? Why do mm-hmm. we have two? Why, why does he have these two children, these two kinds of children of Iluvatar? And he has to because what one thing he gets out of having two and one kind is immortal, namely the elves, is it really shines a light on <laughs> the mortality of, of men, of human beings. And he has to like explain that in his in, in the logic of the whole thing. Why? Yeah. You know, why if Iluvatar can create elves who don't die of natural causes, then why does he also create these creatures who are basically the same except they die after you know yeah yeah much time? And it really yeah really puts the that sort of problem of mortality in a theological light, and um. And he has an answer for it, and it's it's the Christian answer, which is not a satisfactory answer to many people. But it's that they they're these human beings are destined for something even greater than what the elves get, and and they don't. Nobody really knows what that is. So he has an eschatological vision built into the legendarium, and and it's only that which makes the long defeat of history ultimately bearable. And. Yeah. That's a thing to know about Tolkien, and I think it's widely known, but it's not really reflected upon. You know, Christians sort of gather him up for team Christianity, and the people who aren't Christians and don't want to be just sort of ignore it, even though they know it is there. And it doesn't really get accounted for. I haven't seen any accounting for it in any adaptation because it doesn't usually get explicitly brought out. You got to read like certain moments in like the Silmarillion or something or yeah. other weird corners of his work maybe not even in, in the normal legendarium and like Leaf by Niggle you know is an incredible incredible short story yeah like, one of the yeah. most beautiful allegories ever written and you know how many people like should should you have to read Leaf by Niggle as if you're going to study Tolkien and no one's ever going to make a movie out of that probably although I mean right. you could it would be beautiful short film like Terrence Malick could make that movie yeah yeah you should yeah. make that. <laughs> Someone get Terrence right. Malick on the line right now, and <laughs> we have an idea. But that's that's an essential part of his work, and people get sheepish talking about it because you know we live in a pluralist society, and it's awkward to talk about religion. But and and also you don't want to like if if he always feels like you know you're bringing in the, something about the author committing some horrific act of the biographical fallacy and and trying to like browbeat christianity into the readership because but don't you know tolkien was a catholic you fool and and yeah. it's not that it's just like it is in there it, it's in it, yeah. it colors the it's whole thing say what it's embedded in there he yeah. called it a fundamentally yeah. catholic christian work 
Yeah, just yeah. like it is in the Green Knight. Yeah, and, yep. And it's it's if you adapt it without that, without capturing that feeling somehow, and you can do it however you want it. You know, you don't have to do it whatever way. You know, the way it's actually in there. But if you just leave that out, yeah, you de- deliberately sidestep it, then. Yeah, I think that would be grounds for saying like this is not as valid an adaptation. Right. Unless maybe you could somehow fill the gap with with something else. I, yeah. I don't know. I so, mean, honestly, um, I, I think that's why the Jackson, the first Jackson trilogy, the one, the one on Lord of the Rings was so successful because I think it, I think to an extent it does. Yeah. Even though it doesn't talk about kind of eschatology or whatever else, the eucatastrophe is there, right? And yeah, yeah. So, it doesn't have to be explicit. It's it's a the, feeling in the structure. Because the eucatastrophe is, you know, the eschatological happy ending that we can't see woven in in the short term into the events of of history that we can see. Right. And then and then, of course, after the eucatastrophe, we have this sort of long defeat where Frodo's like, I'm tired, Sam, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and is ready to go off to the Grey Havens. You know, it's sad because that's the way life, this side of death ends up going. Right. But but you have the moments of you catastrophe to remind you that ultimately, you know, there there's there's a, a consolation coming. Right. Yeah. Um, the, Tolkien always called it a glimpse. It's only right. a glimpse, a piercing glimpse of joy. And that's the, he, it's the language in, on fairy stories, which I would love to say you must read on fairy stories if you're going mm-hmm. to study Tolkien. But that that seems unfair. I, my students yeah. won't read it regular film goers are certainly not going to read it yeah, but okay. i wish i could i mean because that, that's where you really get the the spiritual heart of of the man yeah. 1939 lecture <clears throat> yeah. yeah well to answer my own question my favorite tolkien adaptation is the two towers by peter jackson extended edition because it's got all the good rohiric stuff in it with which I absolutely love. And yeah, lots lots of extra good Gollum stuff as well and uh, and, and stuff with Treebeard. So it's just super, yeah. super you fun. You can't go wrong picking the ants. That or... was my that was my favorite of the of the three. And then as far as most grown worthy Tolkien adaptation, I still have to go back to Leonard Nimoy's Ballad of Bilbo Baggins. Which I'm sorry, just... but I really like that song. It's it's it, I I love it in and it's you know I I, I think qualitatively it's just horrible, but it's so bad that it's great. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, just uh, just just so much fun to to watch. So listeners, we will leave you. With that fine song by Mr. Leonard Nimoy, Jonathan Geltner, Eric Geddes, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Cheers. in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Now 
comics are peace-loving folks, you know. They're never in a hurry and they take things slow. They don't like to travel away from home. They just like to eat and be left alone. But one day Bilbo was asked to go on a big adventure to the caves below to help some dwarves get back their gold that was stolen by a dragon in the days of old Bilbo. Bilbo Baggins, only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. Well, he fought with the goblins. He battled a troll. He riddled with Gollum. A magic ring he stole. He was chased by wolves, lost in the forest, escaped in a barrel from the elf king's halls. Bilbo. Now he's back in his home in the land of Shire, that brave little hobbit whom we all admire, just sitting on a treasure of silver and gold, puffing on his pipe in his hobbit ho ho Bilbo. All blessed encounter full of joy and scheduled on a decent plan with here an addict of Tolkien, there a Charles Williams fan. <laughs>